Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. We started this series last week called The Comeback because regardless of whether this uh, pandemic is ending anytime soon or ever, uh, I believe it's time for us to emotionally, relationally, spiritually uh, come back stronger from everything that COVID has robbed from us and changed in us or discouraged out of us. Um, even if protocols don't change, even if we're on the verge or in the middle of a fourth wave, it's time for us to reboot, to recalibrate, to revision ourselves, re-gospel our hearts. It's time for a comeback. And it's been a, it's been a long, dark night that we've been enduring. And now um, maybe the day is at hand, at least in our spirit because the year and a half has been about more than a pandemic. It's been more about than uh, just a virus. Um, last week, we talked about the need to stop social distancing. And for anyone just joining us, that didn't have anything to do with six feet. I was talking about something deeper. It was, it was about the need to bring healing to the, the relational wear and tear that we've all been through, the kind of division, the kind of relational distancing that we've seen by extending grace to one another. And today I want to look at a second biblical key to coming back from the last 18 months from all that has been wrought in our lives. And the second biblical key, take off your mask. And again, I want to be super clear. I'm, I'm, I'm being a little cheeky with these titles. I'm not talking about a mask made of linen or or cloth. I'm talking about the mask that we may have been hiding behind for the last 18 months. The mask uh, hiding what's going on in our marriages and with our kids and our emotions, our dysfunctions, our moods. Um, The mask that we've been hiding behind during this time. Some of us are keeping our mask on because we're living in denial about what the last 18 months has done in us and to us. Some of us have them because we're living in secrecy. Uh, Some of us have them because we're dealing with guilt or shame. Some of us have them on because we, we think it really does cover up what we've become or what we've done. And the one thing that all mask wearing has in common is this, having it on doesn't solve anything. It it doesn't address anything. It doesn't make things go away. So so let me just make it personal for you this morning. What's behind your mask? Is it addiction? Is it a broken marriage? Is it a wayward child? Is it depression? Um, Frequenting sites you know you shouldn't frequent? 
financial stress. Let me tell you uh, a story from the Bible so that we can get a little more insight. Uh, A story about a man after God's own heart. Uh, But he had this season of mask wearing. It's a story about a man who made a series of bad decisions, uh, kind of as the result of working from home instead of going to the office. Does that sound familiar to anyone? No? Okay. Uh, Here's how the story begins in 2 Samuel. Uh, You can read it on the screen. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelites' army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. Okay, let's just stop right there. When kings normally go off to war, which means uh, David should have been defending his nation, leading his troops, fighting for the cause of his people, he chose to stay at home. Kings tended to uh, do these kinds of kingdom business in the spring months because of, of, the, of the weather in the winter months. So it's been about 10 years since David has been king um, in Israel. It's a time of prosperity. It's a time of accomplishment. Instead of going forward, though, David was hanging back. Uh, Maybe he was still fueled by all his good press, you know, sort of resting on his laurels. We don't know all the reasons. He just decided, you know what? I'm not going to do it this time. I'm going to stay out this season. Which means he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. He wasn't attending to what he was supposed to be attending to. And unlike many of us, he wasn't forced uh, to work from home. He chose to. And, and for David, it meant all of his energy, all of, all of his time was free to go in, in other directions. It's like when um, George Costanza from Seinfeld wears his sweatpants, right? And Jerry's like, you know, the message you're giving to the world is that you've given up. Well, David is in his sweatpants, okay? And there wouldn't be much accountability All the soldiers, all the officers were off to war, and David, that's where David should have been. There's no sense of like, where's where's David? Why isn't he at this meeting, you know? Shouldn't he be here? Shouldn't he be giving leadership to this? Where is he? Because he stayed at home. He isolated himself. So instead of his time and energies being disciplined and channeled and accounted for, he was in a situation where his time his energies were undisciplined, unchanneled, unaccounted for. And that's when it got messy. One of the more sordid personal leadership fails in, in biblical history. Keeping David sees a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He doesn't avert his eyes. He, he, in fact, he does the opposite. He obsesses. And the person he sends to find out who this mystery woman is comes back and tells David that her name is Bathsheba and she's married to one of his officers who's in the army off at war, the man named Uriah. But he sent for her anyway. 
And for those who believe that absolute power corrupts absolutely, this might be evidence for that. He sleeps with her. I don't think the question of consent, you know, at least the way we understand it, would have even been considered. And then he sent her home, but she becomes pregnant. A lot of you know this story. Maybe some of you don't. So to cover it up, he sent for her husband to come home on a leave from the battle, hoping that he would sleep with her and that the baby would be seen as theirs. But because no other soldier came home, and because Uriah was like this guy of integrity, he was honorable, he wouldn't even go inside the house, let alone sleep with his wife. And this was all in solidarity with his fellow soldiers who weren't getting their own weekend pass. So David decided to invite him to a party and try and get him drunk, hoping that, you know, it would break down this noble resistance and, uh, and he would go home to his wife. That didn't work. So David sends him back to the army and, and he does something really despicable. He, he arranged for Uriah to be stationed at the front of the battle where all the action was. And, uh, and, and here's what he said in uh, 2 Samuel. Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. I mean, David might have well have just plunged the sword in Uriah himself. The blood was on his hands. And that finally, in David's thinking at least, worked. And then he married Bathsheba. Okay, so how's your COVID been? Because that was David's 18 months there. That's what was happening at his work from home season. It's the story of a man who is behind a mask, right? A deeply entrenched shadow life is going on here. So what happened next? Well, it's interesting. God sent a, a prophet named Nathan to confront David. Because I got to tell you, God was none too pleased about all of this. God had Nathan tell David a story, a, a parable that would, you know, actually get through to him, get through to him on an emotional level so that he would see the wrong he did. What was David's job as a teenager? Shepherd boy. Good. And so Nathan told him a little parable about a shepherd. Uh, a parable that would reveal what David had done to this man and Uriah and his wife. And so let me read it, if I could, from a very modern translation called the, the Message. Here's what it says. But God was not at all pleased with what David had done and sent Nathan, a prophet, to David. Nathan said to him, there were two men in the same city, one rich, the other poor. The rich men had huge flocks of sheep, herds of cattle. The poor men had nothing but one little female lamb, which he had bought and raised. It grew up with him as his children, like a member of the family. It ate off his plate and drank from his cup and slept on his bed. It was like a daughter to him. One day a traveler uh, dropped in on the rich man. He was too stingy to take an animal from his own herd or flock to make a meal for his visitor. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared a meal to set before his guest. David exploded in anger. As surely as God lives, he said to Nathan, the man who did this ought to be lynched. He must repay for the lamb four times over for his crime and his stinginess. You're the man, Nathan said. And not like, you're the man. You the man. You know, you're the man. 
And God had to use Nathan to take off David's masks. And he made him see his actions, his choices, his character, his brokenness. So what was the result of having his mask taken off? What kind of effect did it have on David? Well, the Bible tells us later, then David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against God. For the first time in a long season, it sounds like, um, he saw what was behind his mask and it broke him in all the right ways. David saw his own sin. He owned his sin. He confessed his sin. And I I don't know what might be behind your mask this morning. I, I, I do know based on the conversations that I've had in the last 18 months, uh, based on the conversations our other pastors and elders have had with people over the last year and a half, that generally speaking, there tend to be four kinds of issues behind the mask that we're wearing. Now, the first mask is a mask of people hiding behind some kind of emotional duress. And for most people, it's depression. So glad Victoria shared that today. She had no idea what I was talking about, but uh, how timely was that? It, it's a topic near and dear to my personal experience, as some of you know. And the reason the mask is on is because um, sometimes people have a very particular view of depression as weakness, you know, particularly for a Christian. So people keep their depression a secret. Uh, that mask needs to come off, friends. It, it really does. Thank you again, Victoria, for modeling that this morning. You, you didn't need that mask to begin with, actually. First, because depression is nothing to be ashamed of. It's not a spiritual fail. It's certainly not some kind of sin. Clinical depression is one of uh, four categories of mood disorders. You know, just as diabetes has nothing to do with, or, or you know, sin, certainly, it's, it certainly has everything to do with a physiological failure to regulate blood sugar. Mood disorders result from the brain's failure to regulate, you know, the chemicals that control mood. Uh, norepinephrine, serotonin are the two neurotransmitters involved in depression. And when there's an ample supply of those, um, one will feel normal emotionally. Typically, I mean, you can still have your ups and downs, but you you aren't fighting the illness of, of depression where fewer of those neurotransmitters are released. And if antidepressant medication is, is working, it's because it helps um, increase the amounts of norepinephrine and serotonin in the body. So physiology contributes, but sometimes, you know, circumstances or seasons of, of trauma actually affect your physiology, right? Emotional trauma can initiate the chemical changes in the brain that cause depression, including long sustained seasons of stress, like, oh, I don't know, a year and a half long global pandemic, maybe? I I think there really is a thing of despondency uh, there's a thing of spiritual attack. There certainly is a thing, like Victoria talked about, of believing the lies that your brain can tell you. There's a dark night of the soul that can rob you of hope and joy. 
But there's also this very real medical issue called depression. So before you make any kind of accusation of some kind of spiritual weakness, you know, would you first show compassion and empathy with the knowledge that this is as real as, as diabetes is real? You shouldn't feel any shame in telling someone, yeah, I'm on antidepressants now. I'm not sure for how long. Um, they help, they're helping right now. It should be a non-issue. So let's put an end to um, feeling ashamed of depression or spiritually self-conscious about it. Just give you a little plug in, uh, in the, later in the fall, we're going to be hosting a, a six-week, midweek series where we're going to talk from a biblical standpoint about the mental health crisis that we find ourselves in. I've never seen anything like it. COVID may have accelerated it, but we're in the midst of it. And so we're going to talk honestly about things like depression and PTSD and suicidal ideation. It's okay to be depressed. You know what's not okay is keeping it behind a mask. Here's the second thing behind a lot of masks coming out in the last 18 months. Addictions. I think we all have varying degrees of of dependency issues, you know, from coffee, Brittany, to our, <laughs> to our phones. I'm talking about, I'm talking though about life controlling, life destroying, all consuming addictions. And it can be pills, it can be porn, it can be gambling, it can be alcohol, uh, it can be food, it can be gaming. Uh, the list is almost endless. And so the classic definition of any addiction is the compulsive engagement in something despite adverse consequences. And it's amazing the degree to which people seek to keep that behind a mask. Brennan Manning, is that a name anyone would recognize? He, yeah, he, he's just one of my heroes. He wrote this book, The Ragged Muffin Gospel. He was a a Catholic priest, a recovering alcoholic, and he tells this story in the Ragamuffin Gospel. I mean, once, shame on me, but twice, shame on you for listening. I mean, <laughs> this book, um, you should read it if you get a chance. He tells this story when he was a patient at an alcoholic rehabilitation center. There were 25 chemically dependent men who were assembled in this large room. And the leader was this trained counselor and, and therapist. And all the men had signed away, you know, privacy rights, sworn to tell the truth in like an affidavit type way, had given permission that people could check in on their story and in on their, on their relationships. And uh, the leader's name was Sean Murphy O'Connor. And, and Brennan writes that Sean directed a patient named Max to sort of sit in the hot seat. Everybody got a turn in the hot seat and was in the center of the group. And Max claimed to be, you know, a nominal Christian and married with five children and owned a company and was very successful. And the first question from O'Connor was this. I, I want you to give a history of how much you were drinking a day. And Max says, well, I have two uh, Bloody Marys before lunch and two martinis uh, after uh, the office closes at five. And then I have two martinis before dinner and two more before going to bed. So a total of eight a day. 
Yeah, yeah. Not a drop more, not a drop less, he says. And then another member of the group asks, well, you ever hide a bottle in the house? And Max is like, don't be ridiculous. I don't have anything to hide. It's all out in the open. Well, how many bottles do you have in the house? Um, I really don't know. Um, you know, offhand, I would say two cases of Smirnoff and a case of beef fever, uh, gin and a few bottles of bourbon and scotch and an assortment of other liquors. So this interrogation keeps going on for 20 minutes. And uh, they got the sense he was minimizing and justifying and rationalizing his drinking patterns. And finally, just trapped by this relentless cross-examination, he admitted he secretly kept a bottle of vodka in his nightstand and a bottle of gin in his suitcase for travel purposes and another in the bathroom cabinet for medicinal purposes and three more in his office for drinks throughout the day. And then the therapist asked, uh, get me a phone. And so a telephone was brought and he dialed a number in Max's hometown. And he put it on the speakerphone so that everyone could hear. And when the person answered, um, he said, uh, is this Hank Shea? And the person said, yeah, who's this? He said, my name's Sean Murphy O'Connor and I'm a counselor at an alcohol drug and rehab center in the Midwest. Do you remember a customer named Max? Uh, with his family's permission, I'm, I'm researching his drinking history, and you tend bar at his tavern every afternoon. So I'm wondering if you could tell me approximately how much Max drinks each day. And Shay said, oh, oh he drops a ton, uh, a ton of money here every afternoon. Uh, he starts with his standard six martinis. And then Max jumped up and started swearing at everyone in the room, and uh, they hung up the phone, and then another person asked Max, have you ever been unkind to your children? And Max begins to boast about what a great dad he was. But someone cut him off and asked him again, have you ever been unkind to one of them? And he said, well, um, I was a little thoughtless, I, I think, to my nine-year-old daughter last Christmas Eve. I don't I don't totally remember what happened. I just have this heavy feeling whenever I, I think about it. But you know what happened next. Get me the phone. And Sean Murphy called Max's wife, said, ma'am, we're in the middle of a group therapy session here, and your husband just told us that he might have been thoughtless to your daughter last Christmas Eve. Do you, can you fill in any details? And her soft voice filled the room on the speakerphone, and she said, yeah, I can tell you the whole thing. Our daughter, Debbie, wanted a pair of shoes for Christmas present. And uh, on the afternoon of the 24th, my, my husband drove her downtown and gave her a bunch of money and told her to buy the best shoes in the store. And she did. And she climbed back in the car and she kissed him on the cheek and told him he was the best daddy in the whole world. And so Max decided to celebrate on the way home. And he stopped at his bar a few miles from our house, and told Debbie he'd be right out. It was a cold day. It was about minus 12 Celsius. And Max left the motor running and locked both doors from the outside so no one could get in. And it was a little after 2 in the afternoon at that point. And then uh, the voice on the phone grew quiet. They could hear her softly crying. But she went on. She told the story. She said, my husband lost track of time lost track of purpose and everything else. He 
He came out of the bar at midnight. The motor had stopped running, and the car windows were frozen shut. And Debbie, our daughter, was badly frostbitten on both ears and her fingers. And when we got to the hospital, the doctors had to operate. They amputated her thumb and forefinger. And uh, she'll be deaf the rest of her life. And Max fell on the floor and began to sob hysterically. It sounds a bit like a prophet Nathan moment in this guy's life. But you know, after that event, um, Brendan writes, he went through the most striking personality change. He got more honest, more open, more sincere, more vulnerable than any man in that group. And the night before Max completed his treatment to move on to the next step, one of the men in his treatment facility passed by his room. And Max had been crying. And he looked up through tears and said, I I just prayed for the first time in my life. The mask was coming off, folks. Here's a third thing behind a lot of masks. Secret crisis. What I mean by that is in the last 18 months, you have experienced a personal crisis and have been dealing with it. But many of you are dealing with it alone. And it could be with one of your children. It could be a financial setback. It could be a medical issue, a miscarriage, a a cancer diagnosis. Um, It could be a marital crisis, even emotional or physical abuse. And you don't know what to do. Uh, your masks need to come off. And, and by that, I mean, you need to be served. You need to be loved. You need to be known, prayed for. You need community. And you need to be able to take off your mask and say, my name is Mary and I have breast cancer and I'm scared to death. Or my name is Rick and I lost my job and I have no idea how my family is going to make it. Uh, My name is Jillian, and I have a daughter addicted to drugs, and my heart is broken, and I'm emotionally and spiritually exhausted. You know, I'm sure um, Paul and Rosemary are private people, the way we're all kind of private people. But I'm so glad that she shared this morning, you know, the not only a bit of the pain, but a bit of the hope. Uh, that she led us in. You know, as a, as a family of faith, the church is supposed to be a place where we can kind of take off our masks together and to weep and rejoice together and to um, be brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. And when it happens, oh man, we start to experience, I think, what God intended for the church to become. You know, why God specifically uses language of family when he describes the church. But first, you have to let people know what's behind the mask. It reminds me of a story from Robert Fulgham. And he was talking about the game of the childhood game of hide and go seek. Most of us played that game as children. There's one problem. There's always one kid who kind of hid too well that nobody could ever find him. And the game ends, and sooner or later, he'd show up mad because nobody, you know, we stopped looking for him. And then we were kind of mad at him because he wasn't really playing the game. It was, you you know, you have to hide in a way that you can still be found, right? 
You have to be able to be found. And Fulgham writes of a man who discovered that he had terminal cancer. He was a doctor, actually, and he didn't want to make his family or friends suffer through the illness with him. So he kept his secret. And eventually he died. And at his funeral, everybody said how brave he was to bear that suffering in silence and not to tell everyone. Everyone said he was brave except his family. They were angry that they didn't feel as though he needed them or didn't trust uh, their strength. Uh, it hurt them beyond words that he didn't even say goodbye or let them say goodbye. This was a man who hid too well. Around here, we say real people, real problems, real God. Uh, you'll find that on the first page of our website. Now, is that an aspirational statement? Or is that something we're actually living out at NAC? Would people say of us, oh, those folks at Newmark Alliance, those are real people. Well, one more thing, and a lot of us are masking over this, and that's our sin. It's not depression, it's not addiction, it's not a crisis. And maybe it'd be easier to open up if it was. No, for us, it's a straight up, freely chosen sin. And that's the last thing that we want to take off our mask and reveal, isn't it? What was the response of the very first sin in humanity as recorded in Genesis 2? It was hiding from God, wasn't it? As if that were even possible, naked and ashamed and in hiding. And what was the first sin recorded at the beginning of the New Testament church? Ananias and Sapphira acting like people they weren't, putting on masks, pretending to be selfless and generous, but they were hiding a great deception. Can I tell you something as your pastor? Or if I'm not your pastor, can I tell you something as, as at least as someone uh, speak from my experience into this? There's only two ways that this is going to play out. The first is what happened to David. God will find a way to take your mask off. And the time will come when he'll do it. It'll either be in this life or the one to come. And there'll be an accounting. There'll be a reckoning. And let me tell you, you don't want to have your mask your whole life and have it taken off after you die. Which, by the way, all of us will die and stand before judgment. And by then, friends, it's, it'll, just, it'll be too late. But there's another way that this can play out. Take the mask off now. Um, take it off yourself. And then when you do, you do what David did because David did that right thing. When the mask came off, he didn't lie. He didn't resist. He didn't defend. He didn't deflect. He didn't run. He fell to his knees as a wreck and he owned it. Against you and you, God only have I sinned. And you can do that too. In fact, it's what it takes to become a Christ follower, isn't it? To own your sin. And then once you've owned it, to ask God to forgive you for it on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. Peter called this good news. And some of you may be wondering what he means. But it's a good question. Why is this cross good news? 
Because the sin of someone like David, the sin of someone like me, the sin of someone like you is serious. It's more serious than you probably imagine. And the Bible says that the wages of sin, the cost of sin is death. Now, that makes a lot of people say, well, what kind of God is that? Well, a holy one, a perfect one, a just one, one who cannot react and respond to sin in any other way and still be God. But, but here's what else he is. He's a reckless lover, like we sang this morning, a God who loves us and pursues us. And when justice meets love, it drives a nail into your hand. Um, the son of God steps in to take the penalty, to pay the price. So before you think confessing your sin before a holy God is too awkward to imagine, too frightening to envision, uh, too humiliating to consider, remember this, Jesus died so that you would feel free to do just that and be met with nothing but love and forgiveness and grace. And I'd just like to invite you, you know, it, it's, it's just a prayer away. And there's no weird formula to it. There's no magic words. But the heart of it may sound something like this. In fact, if you're, if you're watching today, listening to this on a podcast, here with me in the room, and you're tired of the mask of sin that you're wearing, and you'd like to experience the freedom that comes with the complete forgiveness, I'd like to invite you to just pray along under your breath this simple prayer. Michael, something like this. Dear Jesus, I know that I need your forgiveness. I believe that you came to earth, that you died for me, that you rose again. And now I can have new life. I want to ask you to come into my heart and my life. I want to trust you and follow you as my leader. That's it. You're owning your sin. You're asking for your forgiveness. You're recognizing God is the only one who actually can forgive. Because you say like David, I sinned against you, God. And then you freely, willingly, gladly hand over the steering wheel. Uh, some of you are so sick of driving your own life anyways. You, you, you're ready to let a perfectly wise and good and just God take the wheel. And friends, that kind of prayer, that kind of simple prayer, uh, not only takes the mask off, but gives you an entirely new face. That is what an authentic Christian is. Not someone who says, I've got it all together. It's someone who says, oh man, I need a savior. Let's take off the mask. Come out of darkness, wherever you've been. Come brokenhearted, let the rescue begin. Come find your mercy, oh sinner, come kneel. Come as you are, that's the invitation. Not come when you've got it all figured out. Come as a broken, hopeless and helpless sinner. Maybe even in this song, you would surrender to Jesus. Will you stand with me as we sing? You are such a love people. And 
I hope that instead of just coming to do your religious liturgy, instead of just watching church or attending church, that you actually go and be the church. Live this stuff out in the rinks and the workplaces and the schools. God bless you.